Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode is kindly sponsored by The Body Shop. The Body Shop believes that in order to create a positive change in the world, we must start with creating a positive change within. That's why it's launched its self-love uprising. This campaign aims to inspire 1 million acts of self-love in one year to create more love and positive change in the world. My journey to self-love isn't one with an end date. It's something that I commit to on a daily basis. When I treat myself with respect and kindness, the more compassionate I can be to my friends, my family, my community and the planet. We live in a society which teaches women and marginalised people not to love ourselves. We exist in spaces that tell us that we're too much to take up less space and to always watch our backs. In a society where it is literally an act of rebellion to rest, I've made a vow to commit to self-love every single day. For me, that means taking the time to cook one of my favourite dishes, organise and reorganise my wardrobe, or give myself an evening facial massage while I cleanse. It truly is the small things that bring me joy and help me spread love, which then extends to those around me, my community and the planet. Join the self-love uprising. To learn more, head to the Body Shop social channels or the online self-love hub. Hello and welcome back to All The Small Things. This week I'm chatting to Uju Asika. Uju is a multiple award nominated blogger at babesabouttown.com, digital consultant for Mothers and Shakers and the author of the book Bringing Up Race, How to Raise a Kind Child in a Prejudiced World. This book is for absolutely everyone who wants to instill a sense of open-minded inclusivity. Of course, it's great for parents, but as someone who doesn't have children of their own, I found it to be one of the most important books I've read this year. The book is aimed at those who want to discuss difference instead of shying away from tough questions. Uju draws on often shocking personal stories of prejudice, along with the opinions of experts, influencers and fellow parents to give prescriptive advice, making this an invaluable guide. I feel very grateful for Uju for her patience and kindness and I really enjoyed recording this episode. If you enjoy the show, please do share it with a friend. You can just copy the link and paste it directly to a friend or you can share it on your Instagram stories to help get the word out there. Here is Uju Asika on all the small things. So Uju, thank you so much for coming on the show. Let us start as we always do, I would love to hear if you have some kind of morning routine or if perhaps your mornings are fairly chaotic, different every day and things just manage to get done. First of all, thanks for having me. It's really great to be on your podcast. Um, When I think about a morning routine, it's very much aspirational, I would say. I don't so much have a routine as a like 
I think of rhythms when I think of, you know, especially as a parent, I try to live my life in rhythms as opposed to routines, because frankly, everything is just a little bit chaotic from day to day. So I guess I get up and I try and make sure the boys are ready for school. And that's kind of like my main thing that I'm doing before around 10am. And I think because I've always worked in media and work never really started until 10 and it was always like it was never nine to five it was always sort of 10 a.m to one till whenever so um yeah I think my official work day starts around 10 and before then I'm just scrambling around trying to get stuff ready <laughs> to have my mind in gear yeah I love that and I love what you said about rhythms I've definitely been thinking about that a lot recently um especially as the seasons are changing and I don't know about you but during the winter in the UK I am a shell a fragment of the person I am usually and very kind of I very much um go into hibernation mode and as spring comes I start to feel much more creative and I just love that you said that no one's ever said that and I really really appreciate it Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm just like you in winter. I find find it hard to even write in winter because my fingers get so cold and I'm sitting at my keyboard and I get brain freeze once my fingers are cold. So um, yeah, I definitely open up in spring and summertime. Are there any things that you try and take off every day? Um, Well, I'm very much a disorganized planner. So I have a bullet journal. I'm really into bullet journaling, but I'm not one of these like amazing, you know, there's a massive bullet journaling community and they all do these like really pretty journals. Mine is just like trying to plan myself (laughs) into some kind of schedule. Uh, So one thing I must do is just like write down a daily list of stuff I need to do. And I'm trying to keep it short. Uh, I've got this book, The One Thing, and I'm trying to sort of focus on this one thing mindset, like just do one useful thing every day. Unfortunately, my to-do list just gets endless. So so it's a bit of a challenge. Um, So I think just doing my journal, keeping to my checklist, and then just the regular stuff that you do at home, you know, making sure that dinner's cooked and the boys are sorted out for the next day and some kind of laundry is done and, you know, the whole household isn't completely on top of me. I know you're really into food and I'm wondering if you're a breakfast person and what kind of might be your favorite thing to have for breakfast on a on a working day but also maybe on a weekend too. Yeah, I'm not really a breakfast person. Uh, on a weekend, like I love to be able to go out for a family brunch. That's kind of something I'm really looking forward to once things open up. So I just go out for brunch or um, go out for like dumplings on a Sunday or something like that. But um, in terms of breakfast, I don't tend to eat breakfast at home very often. I try to have lemon tea, but well, lemon water, hot lemon water. But again, that's something that I don't really have until when it gets to around springtime and I feel like something lighter. In the morning, I just want a big hot cup of tea <laughs> to sink my face into Lovely. That sounds delicious. I've had quite a few of those today. Um, Now, I'd love to hear a little bit about your childhood and what influence that had on your own parenting. And I also want to say that we will talk more about your book in a little bit, but reading your book, what became, what has become so abundantly clear is just how much of a fantastic mother you are. I am just like in awe of you. Um, So yeah, I'd love to hear about how your own childhood impacted you as a parent and a mother today. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. 
um, and I will accept your compliment with grace, which is something that I'm telling myself to do, <laughs> not just be like, oh no, I'm not a good mum. I will accept it. Yes, I'm a great mum, and mums deserve more credit. So definitely, I will, I will take that. Um, yeah, I so I was born in Nigeria. And I grew up in a very, well, I'll say, very creative, very colorful household. My parents, both of them, come from really big families. My mom had twenty-one uh, brothers and sisters. She came from a polygamous household, um, so we just had our house was just full of family members, and we grew up with lots of cousins around, and you know, just sleeping, everyone piled in one bed, and that kind of stuff. So. Um, I came to the UK when I was really young and I went to boarding school in the south of England. Now, this was like massive culture shock, which I wrote about quite a bit in the book as well. Uh, we'd go back to Nigeria in the holidays. I had this very much like mixed multicultural heritage and upbringing. And I think in terms of what it gave me as a mother, I think an openness to different experiences and also just the embracing of creativity and art and culture and books. My parents were really into books. So I think that's something that has influenced my own parenting in terms of how I bring my boys up. Both the boys are read. Well, my younger one doesn't read as much as my, my oldest. I'm trying to get them both back into reading, especially during uh, through this pandemic. They've got much more into video games and less into reading. So I'm trying to like reverse that trend. I think we've all perhaps developed some habits which we're less proud of perhaps in this time. Like I'm all, I've got such a big pile of books that I want to read. And then Netflix just always seems to annoyingly take priority. <laughs> Um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your writing process. Do you have any habits to get you into the best headspace for writing? Because I do speak to quite a lot of writers and authors and I get the impression that sometimes it can be much harder than perhaps we we know as or I know as someone who hasn't written a book or or doesn't have, write a blog um, when all you see is words so beautifully put together. So yeah, what are the kind of habits that really get you into that headspace? I would love to be one of these writers who sits down at 10 a.m. and you know instantly knocks out my 2,000 words for the day and then carries on with life like I love I'm always reading about other writers routines and they seem like oh wow that's really focused and organized for me it's a little bit more slapdash uh, what inspires me is very often a deadline let's be honest <laughs> like if I have a big deadline then that's really inspirational I'm like oops I've got to get that and I'm always very last minute like I call myself a deadline surfer so I just like take it to the edge <laughs> with my deadlines unfortunately and I've always been this way I'm like I can't believe since school, since my school days I'm still like this last minute person but um, aside from that I think just reading sometimes reading very often reading stuff that I, I used to write a lot of poetry and even though I don't write as much poetry now I still will like read a poem and that really inspires me just to write because I, I love words and I love poetry. I recently read your blog post on Megan, Harry and baby Archie and I found it really powerful and really moving um, what you said in the piece about education in the UK was great. You say, one reason people in Britain get so worked up around race is that our education system has pulled a fast one on us. The school curriculum is woefully inadequate 
on teaching black history, black British history, colonialism, or any kind of race literacy. Please could you talk a little bit more about that? I think the entire education system needs like a massive overhaul, not just in terms of racial education, but you know, everything. I think kids aren't taught properly um, critical thinking. They're not taught emotional literacy and uh, definitely not taught race literacy. A lot of the problem is white supremacy, frankly. I mean, let's just be honest because There is no desire to really teach the masses about stuff like colonialism and slavery and how the part that Britain played in that, because it doesn't really serve the narrative of, oh, you know, we we serve the Commonwealth and, you know, we went around the world and we improved things for everybody. And there just needs to be a lot more transparency and accountability in education. I think accountability is just a massive issue for you know, on a lot of levels throughout society, but certainly in education, we need to just start telling the truth and telling the whole story, not just like one person's angle. And you can hear it in the media when all these so-called pundits come out and speak about stuff like race. You know, we talk about Megan and we see all the stuff that happened with Piers Morgan. And I'm like, a lot of the stuff you're saying is, is quite ignorant and if you had had the education to back it up, then I don't think you would say half of the stuff you're saying. But because, you know, as, as far as you're concerned, racism is this and race is that, then you're stuck in a particular idea. So, yeah, I think there's a, there's a long way to go with education. We need to keep pushing to change it. Personally speaking, I'm kind of shocked and appalled that I didn't understand the extent to which the royal family were involved in slavery and how their role in slavery is a truth. It's a fact. It's not something to be debated. It's not an opinion. It is literally a truth. And this is something that I've only been finding out over the past kind of month or so. And I'm so disappointed in myself and also obviously the education system. And it um, leads us quite nicely on to talking about your book, Bringing Up Race, How to Raise a Kind Child in a Prejudiced World. It came out in September and I just think it's so fantastic. And it's definitely something that I'm going to be coming back to. And it's also, I should say, like really helpful, even if you're not a parent or you're child free, just if you're anyone living under the system of white supremacy, which we all are. This is a fantastic book. And I really appreciate how when you're talking about um, the education system, you say that quite rightly that at school we refer to it as history, um, but it should probably be relabeled as Eurocentric history, which is so true, especially when I think back to my own history lessons at school. There is just so much we haven't been taught. What advice would you have for any other parents or people with younger folks in their life who they really like to educate about this? What advice would you have for them and for those people who are feeling disappointed by what their children might be learning in in school how can we disrupt that a little bit and kind of take this necessary education further yeah I think you know as parents you always have to take extra responsibility for you can't just chuck your kids into the school system and then just see what turns up you know we start before they they go to school we start reading with them we start watching stuff with them and just keep having conversations keep learning you know keep educating yourself there's a I was talking the other day about a 
a company I just found out about called Black History School. And this is a really lovely project that was seems to have been set up by a group of Black educators and creative teachers. And they've created this sort of playful, positive curriculum. It's an online curriculum that you can sign up to and you know, your kids can learn about different aspects of race and culture and identity and food and all these things you can read. And I think reading and watching fictional stories as well. So don't just feel like, oh, I've got to find some heavy textbook that's going to give me all the facts. Actually, you can learn a lot just from reading a book like Beloved will teach you a lot about slavery or you know, reading Trevor Noah's Born a Crime, where you learn a lot about the history of race in South Africa, keep expanding your knowledge beyond what's been taught in school, which is pretty limited. Those are awesome suggestions. Thank you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I absolutely love your emphasis on kindness in the book. Can you tell me a little bit about what that word means to you? Yeah, kindness for me is really about connection. It's really about just making a real human-to-human connection that's not a, not about self-interest. It's not about just being passively nice. I think a lot of people confuse kindness with oh, just be kind. And it's like the slogan and it's like niceness, be nice. And it's not about being passively nice. It's about being actively like going out of your way to do something for for someone else that's actually going to benefit everybody. I think kindness is a practice. So I used to tell my boys, oh, you've got to try and do one kind thing every day. And you've got to sort of build this practice in. A lot of people have like a daily gratitude practice because, you know, they think, oh, you know, there's been so many studies around gratitude and what it's like to be grateful and how it impacts you. And actually kindness and gratitude kind of go hand in hand, because if you think about all the things you're grateful for, it's usually based on the kindness that has been shown to you, whether it's kindness from just, you know, the universe or whether it's kindness from the person next door. So if you kind of build kindness into your daily practice, the same way you have gratitude as your daily practice, I think 
um, you can sort of sow a lot more gratitude as well into the world. This is something that I find I really have to do, especially with two boys, because, you know, they spend their days beating each other up. And I'm just like, be kind. <laughs> you know, I'm running around like, try and be kind. <laughs> you know, but I think it's, this is the thing. Remind yourself that this is something that you keep doing. It's not, it's not static. <laughs> it's not a one and done. Yeah, that's such a beautiful link. I love that link so much. Thank you. And I'm imagining it's those early conversations you have with your children about race that are potentially the hardest. What are your tips for talking to very young kids about race? Yeah, I think just try and keep it simple. You know, speak in language that they understand. You don't have to come in like a school teacher or like some kind of race expert also remember that it's not just one conversation. So again, just take the pressure off yourself. You don't have to get it right in this conversation, but there's not, it's not one conversation. You're going to have many, many conversations and you're just basically trying to create a relationship. You know, I tell parents, you know, when you have conversations around race or any other hard topic, it's not about sort of getting it right and saying all the right things. It's just about opening up that relationship with your child where they can talk about anything and you can talk about anything, even if it's uncomfortable. So, you know, if you feel uncomfortable, that's okay. It's actually a good thing because it means that it's that you're feeling the stakes because it is high stakes. You know, when you talk about race and how it impacts people, it's high stakes, but at the same time, it doesn't, it shouldn't weigh you down. So just try and keep it simple. Don't feel like you have to solve everything or say everything in one conversation and just be, you know, be open to whatever comes up. Try and learn from them as much as you're trying to explain stuff to them, try and learn what they know, you know, ask simple questions like, what do you know about this? Or what do you feel about that? I think trying to get to the feeling of things as well is really important, you know, focusing on empathy. So how does this make you feel? If you read something with a child, you know, books can be a great resource. So if you read a book with a child with diverse characters, you can talk about, you know, how does it make you feel to see these different characters in the book? How does it make you feel when characters from different nationalities aren't represented in many books? Focusing on empathy, feelings, and keeping it simple and be honest. That's such good advice. Thank you. I really, really love how at the end of each chapter in the book, you have talking points. These are just so, so helpful. And I just think provide such a like wonderful framework for the book as well. What advice would you have for people who are trying to have these really important conversations about race, about various systems of oppression, but are met with a lot of resentment and fragility from the people that they're trying to talk to. Because I feel like so often we're trying to have these conversations and they can feel so uncomfortable that it's just easier to just, or it feels easier just to duck out. But we obviously know that that's, it's short-term ease, right? Not long-term ease. Yeah. I mean, it can be really difficult. And I think, you know, context matters a lot. So unfortunately, there's social media and a lot of people are trying to have these conversations on social media. And sometimes it just doesn't work because everyone gets so agitated and people pile on and you completely lose track of everything. So, I mean, it depends on the relationship you have with the person that you're interacting with. If it's somebody that you barely know, then it's up to you to call out, you know, I say, speak your truth. 
I love that expression, speak your truth, even if your voice shakes. Um, you know, so even if it's, it's uncomfortable for you and it's uncomfortable for them, speak your truth. I think focus on your experience as well and also your learning journey. A lot of times when you call people out on racism, the defensiveness is about them feeling attacked, like personally attacked. And I think if you talk about, you know, I've learned, this is what I've learned on my journey. Like I didn't know it all originally. I'm not some perfect person. You know, I have learned on this journey that talking about people in a certain way or seeing things from a certain angle is very, very limited. And have you thought about seeing it this way? So approaching it with a more kind of questioning and open as opposed to antagonistic and don't do that and don't say that and you can't do that. And you can't, you know, I think just trying to keep the the heat off it and focus on, okay, where are we trying to get to in this conversation? If you've got kids and you're in a situation where someone says something really racist, it's just really important to interrupt that. Just say, hey, don't say that. That's racist. You know, and if that person's like instantly like, oh, I'm not a racist. You know, I don't think you are racist. But what you're saying (laughs) is racist. You know, try and separate the person from the actual whatever they're saying, whatever they're doing. It's not always, it's not a personal thing. That's really, really, really helpful. Thank you. You mentioned that you didn't learn about the Slave Compensation Commission of 1837. And I'm sure there are so many people who still have no idea about it. But would you mind talking to us briefly about the Slave Compensation Act? Um, Yeah, so basically when, obviously slavery was like, basically the main like economic staple for for the country and this was across class and different social strata it was like the main thing that kept people going so when they decided that you know for moral reasons they were going to abolish slavery the economic incentive for people was that they would compensate all former slave owners and so they borrowed money um, the, the government basically borrowed money and it was up to, I think it was 20, the equivalent of about 17 billion <laughs> pounds today, which, you know, is like mind blowing. I mean, it's still like the biggest sum that's been borrowed, you know, until the, the previous recession was like the biggest sum that been borrowed to compensate slave owners. So I read that and I just thought, I mean, you just think, wow. And, Really, I think if you, there was something that came out a few years ago and it was about um, the taxpayer has been paying off the debt. And it's like people don't even know that they're still paying off that debt. So they were paying off that debt until around 2050. I don't know, I'm not sure if I've got the right dates, but around 2050, they, they were still paying off that debt, which was from compensating slave owners. You know, it's just, it's a crazy thing to me. And it's just one aspect of the slave trade and British history and Britain's part in slavery that just hasn't been taught in schools and would probably make people rethink how, you know, when they think about, oh, Britain abolished slavery. Well, yeah, but then what was the impact of that? (laughs) And how did it benefit you? Do you feel positive about the direction the school curriculum is going in to ensure there's adequate education about slavery and also colonialism? Well, I mean, I try to stay positive. I try to stay hopeful. And I'm really glad that 
a lot of, you know, for instance, the Megan interview and all the issues that happened last year after George Floyd's murder has opened up a lot of these conversations and there's a lot more push for things to change. Um, I feel like I would love for the push to be more top down because at the moment it's, there's organizations like the black curriculum that are really like campaigning actively for, for things to change. It's very grassroots, which is great. And, you know, that's got to continue, but it'd be awesome if we had a government who could, like I said, be accountable and take responsibility and say, okay, this is a massive, massive problem. And education is the one way we're going to change society. So let's decide that this is important enough to put on the curriculum. I would love to hear about some of your favourite reactions that you've had to the book. It's just lovely hearing from people. And like you said earlier, people who aren't necessarily parents. I had one young girl write to me and she was like, oh my goodness, you know, she stumbled across my book and she read it in one sitting and she called up all her family members and was like, you've got to read this book. And she's not a parent herself. She's just some young girl, but she was like, it was so powerful. And it's really like her favorite book ever. (laughs) I was quite blown away. But, um, But I just love the fact that everybody who gets in touch with me tells me that this has opened up some conversation that they've never had before. You know, and these are even people in my personal life, like, friends of mine in my local community have come up to me and said, oh, you know, I wasn't able to talk about this particular issue. Um, like there was a friend of a friend of mine who we're, we're mum friends. So our kids are friends, are good friends. And she said to me, oh, you know, the whole issue of touching Jed, my youngest, touching his hair, how she wasn't able to explain it properly until she read the book and she was able to describe it and have a conversation with her son that got him to see that, oh, I shouldn't really be running around touching other people's hair. So um, yeah, it's it's been great because the main thing I wanted was for people to start talking about race and feel comfortable to have these conversations. Yeah, congratulations. It's such a it's such an achievement. And I, I feel the same actually. It's it is the kind of book that I want to send to all of my friends and family and tell them to buy. And you know, obviously that is why you're on the podcast too. Um now over the past year there has been an increase in discussions and awareness of racism in the UK. To what extent have you found these conversations meaningful and helpful? Because I also understand that there must be a lot of frustration and a lot of heaviness that comes with with it too. You know, like you are amazingly and very graciously on this podcast giving wonderful advice. And as a white person, I'm very, you know, aware that I'm kind of adding to that heaviness. So yeah, I just wanted to kind of hear how that experience has been for you and and if it's been overall a positive one. Yeah, I would say, you know, it's highs and lows. On the whole, it's highs. I do feel positive. You know, I feel like we're at a place that we we just weren't before, where so many more people are aware and so many more people are getting to understand that we need to talk about this and we need to have these and we need to keep these conversations going. So I'm very happy about that. Um, like you said, it can be very oppressive. I mean, last summer I remember, you know, hearing about a shop. I won't name the the store, but you know, they were called out in public because 
with all the stuff that was coming out, there was a, a shop talking about how they were racially profiling people when they came into the shop and they were using a code name for black people. And it was like, just little, these little details just kind of stab you in the gut because you're like, what? I, I've been in that shop before. And obviously, just as a black woman, I'm racially profiled in any shop, but, you know, I can feel it. I, I felt myself being followed around, but knowing that there was a code name <laughs> was like really blew my mind. I thought, what? You know, so there's a lot of that kind of revelation, which I think has been really heavy for anyone who is, you know, black or brown and has to deal with like microaggressions and racism on a daily basis. But at the same time, like I said, I've got this opportunity now to talk about stuff that I've never spoken about with a lot of people, even in my my close circle, and for our kids to hopefully, once they grow up, be able to be part of the conversation in a much more positive and empowering way. So, you know, on the whole, I'm hopeful. How would you feel about doing a quick fire round? Uh, sure. Quick fire with Uju. Breakfast, brunch, lunch, or dinner? Dinner. Tea, coffee, or hot chocolate? tea pancakes or waffles pancakes cinema or theater hmm tough one i'll say cinema books or podcasts Uh, books books cooking or dancing dancing (laughs) cake or cookies cake holiday or festival tough one (laughs) i'm struggling holiday i'll say holiday sunrise or sunset Sunset. Routine or spontaneity? Spontaneity. And finally, early night or night owl? Night owl. That was quick fire. I would love to know what lifts your soul. My kids. Easy. What is your one non-negotiable daily self-care habit? I think listening to music. Um, I just need some kind of soundtrack to my day. It completely changes my mood. So yeah, music. Love that. What are you listening to at the moment? Is there any artist or album that you're loving? Oh gosh, I'm very eclectic, um, but people I love. Uh, I'm a Prince nut, so I'll listen to Prince any day. Um, and James Blake and Mary J. Blige. Oh, great. I love all of those. I would love to hear if there's a book that you would like to recommend to our listeners. Um, Yeah, I've read so many great books recently. And one that really blew me away was Homegoing by Yagyasi. It is just phenomenal. Amazing. I will link that in the episode notes and add it to my list. What one small thing would you like listeners to try out or think about to bring a little joy kindness and coolness into their own lives get a hula hoop (laughs) I I love hula hooping and you know I have a hoop and I think that everybody should hula hoop because it's impossible to do it without feeling playful and happy and joyful so yeah get a hula hoop get hooping (laughs) love I love that I'm actually borrowing this question from you and I'd love to hear what's one thing you absolutely love about your ethnicity and I know this was the question that you asked your contributors for your book I loved it so I'm asking it to you (laughs) (laughs) yeah I love um I love the richness of my ethnicity I love 
being black and being many flavors of black, being black African, being black British, um, with a little bit of a twist of African American because I lived in America. So I love having that sort of diversity within me and being part of a really incredible global story. You know, blackness connects me to people all over the world and to so many different types of food and language that always stems back to Africa, which is where I was born. So I just, yeah, I love it. I love being black. I love that. And finally, what is one thing you hope your future self will have achieved? A routine. No, I'm joking. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would hope that I think for bringing up race, a lot of people have have said, oh, I've bought it for my school. And some people have asked me, oh, you know, how do you get this on the curriculum? And I think this would be amazing if bringing up race was like a recommended text in schools around the world. And it could change the race conversation, not just in homes, but, you know, amongst teachers and institutions and just get people opening up and talking and having more sort of empowering and affirming stories around race. So, yeah, that's kind of a a goal. I will be supporting you in that. I think it should absolutely be on the curriculum. Thank you so much for writing this book and for your time and for being on this podcast. I'm very, very, very grateful. Uh, Thanks so much. It was really enjoyable. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it or gained something from it, please do share it with a friend. That really helps get the word of the podcast out there. As always, please do check out the episode notes for links to my guests and their work. And I will see you back here next week for a brand new episode. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.